everybody, what's up? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. My name is Chris. It's good to be back here with you. You can go to the website, which is Bible Prophecy Talk. I have updated the websites recently. I have added a page just for the, the pre-wrath memes, which we'll talk about in a minute. I also added a page for sort of a pre-wrath primer. So I put a lot of videos and books and other kinds of links, and I'll add to that over time that people might be interested in if they want to learn more about pre-wrath. I recognize that I'm talking a lot about pre-wrath and will continue to do so in these upcoming podcasts and really for the foreseeable future. I mean, in one sense, this is just what I'm doing right now. It's where my head is at. It's I'm doing all this research and uh, this is just a great outlet for that. But on the other hand, it's kind of liberating to just have this one thing, pre-wrath, to uh, focus on and to put my energies in ministry into you know, I think before I was spread all over the place, had a lot of different irons in the fire, so to speak, and ended up being just a jack of all trades and master of none. And I really want to see what happens if I if I am able to focus my energies over and above and beyond this film project, will which will certainly extend for several months. But um, in, in any case, uh, to that end, I've been doing a lot of fun things. We're, the pre-wrath meme competition is something I was just so happy with. Thank you for everybody that submitted to that. You've got to go check out these memes. Uh, you go to my Twitter account, uh, Twitter uh, slash pre-wrath rapture. Uh, you can check them out at the website, Bible Prophecy Talk. You can check them out. I'm still loading them onto my Instagram account, which is uh, fairly new. Again, pre-wrath rapture for Instagram. Some of them were su submitted to some of these Facebook pre-wrath groups, like um, the Pre-Wrath View, I think is the name of that one. There's a few different ones, but a guy named Caleb in that uh, Facebook group won the number one and number two prizes. He submitted a lot of different memes, and most of the ones that you're going to see are actually his. Uh, I ended up working on this, too. I submitted maybe, I think, three memes, including one infographic uh, that's more just a, a flow chart about Second Thessalonians 2 that I think is uh, pretty uh, fun, and I want to continue to do more of that. Just really quick on this, I think it's just doing something that I would have never anticipated, or, or I guess only sort of kind of anticipated the intensity of it. I think it's getting pre-wrath way out further than it could have ever done so before, because it's just the nature of memes especially when something a meme has truth behind it then because it has the truth behind it it can be funny and it can be insightful and it can do all these things that you know memes that aren't true can't so i really love it and i want to continue to do that i think next month we'll run this contest again if you want to continue to send in memes uh you can tag them pre-wrath meme or you can just send them to my email or or facebook or whatever and i'll file them away for next month so yeah, updated that website, started a Reddit group, Pre-Wrath Rapture. I've got a really exciting project that I won't be able to announce for uh, probably another month or two, but it's pretty exciting. And then, of course, the Pre-Wrath Movie website, prewrathmovie.com. And the fundraising goal really hasn't changed since last week. We're still about 40%. Uh, I'm not really too worried about it. We've got several months, and in any case, I'm just really uh, overwhelmed with the support that you've already given, so we will get there. But if you're interested, prewrathmovie.com. Okay, so let's get into the meat of this podcast. I think I'm going to call this one Matthew 24, Pre-Trib Fallout. Okay, so we're going to be talking about the Olivet Discourse, which just means Matthew 24 or the parallel passages such as Mark 13, Luke 21, the basic idea of Matthew 24, and I think most people would kind of agree with this, is that what's happening is the disciples are asking Jesus what are the signs of his coming and the end of the age. Jesus then proceeds to give them a list of signs leading up to his coming, 
and then proceeds for the next chapter and a half, basically, to, to in various ways reiterate that they must watch for these signs, uh, that it's very important to remain faithful, to watch for those signs. And the reason is because you don't know when they will happen. So watch, be alert, uh, be faithful as you're watching. That was That's the rest of the chapter and a half. So the first half is answering the question about the signs, giving them lots of signs for their coming, culminating in the coming itself, the uh, verse uh, 31, and then goes into the exhortations to indeed watch for those signs that we just got done talking about. The problem is that in verses 29 through 31, it causes problems for the current understanding of the rapture according to pre-tribulationalism. So let's just read Matthew 29 through 31. It says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then there will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So the problem with that is, of course, that it sounds a whole lot like the uncontested rapture passage of 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 16. This is a verse that pretty much everybody agrees is talking about the rapture. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, that has been understood by the earliest of times, the earliest of the church, to be parallel passages. They are speaking of the same thing. The Didache, the first real commentary of the early church, was connecting those two passages. Uh, if you look in the margin of most of your Bibles, it will have a, that Matthew 24, 31 is parallel to 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. The King James uh, 1600 version, if that's uh, what you're into, that also uh, connects those two passages. In most pre-trib commentaries that I've read on Matthew 24, when they get to that passage that sounds a lot like the rapture, uh, they will say, hey, I know this sounds a lot like the rapture, but it can't be the rapture because if this is the rapture, then pre-tribulationism is not true. To clarify, there are two problems that pre-tribbers have here. Number one is eminence. We talked about this last week. Eminence is the belief among pre-tribbers that there are no prophesied events that must occur before the rapture. The rapture, they say, is signless. It could occur at any moment. And of course, this passage in Matthew 24 is all about signs. Everything leading up to this rapture passage is filled with signs. So if eminence is true, then this can't be the rapture. And I've actually seen Alan and I have joked about this, that that's a form of argumentation that they use to say why this can't be the rapture, because if it was the rapture, then there wouldn't be any signs. And we see signs, so it can't be the rapture. Case closed. Honestly, that is an argument that I've seen from scholars. The second reason that a pre-tribber must repurpose these verses is because of verse 29, which says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, and then it goes on to talk about this rapture-like event. And in a pre-tribber's mind, what you've just told them they have to believe is that the rapture occurs after the seven-year period. Because of this weird thing, and I keep talking about this in every episode, but I'll say it one more time, the idea of calling the seven-year period the tribulation period is insanity. It's caused so many problems. It's totally unbiblical. It has no precedent in church history. It is something that is entirely modern. 
calling the Great Tribulation the Great Tribulation is perfectly acceptable. That is a, what starts after the midpoint. Everybody agrees on all sides that that's called the Great Tribulation. But calling this whole seven-year period the Tribulation period as now basically brainwashed pre-tribbers, post-tribbers, and mid-tribbers, they literally can't see the word Tribulation without it like morphine and magically in their mind to the number seven years. So again, when they hear the words immediately after the Tribulation of those days, then the Rapture will happen. Then in their mind, you're telling them, that the rapture won't happen until the end of the seven-year period. So I don't blame them for feeling that they can't accept anything but the pre-tribulational position because every other position in their mind seems absurd. So after reading a lot of pre-tribulational material, I would say that the consensus view among pre-tribbers is that what is happening in Matthew 24, 29 through 31 is that it is the return of Christ at Armageddon. So at the end of that 70-week uh, period, that seven-year period, uh, Christ comes back on a white horse with the armies of heaven for judgment, and they would say that is what is in view. They do have some differing opinions when it comes to that verse in Matthew 24, 31 about the gathering the elect to him in the clouds, because in uh, Revelation 19, there's no gathering of anybody anywhere. So they get a little creative with that gathering. I would say the consensus view there is probably the term they use, gathering the wicked for judgment. And it's kind of rare to get a definitive statement I found in the commentaries. They, they're sort of wishy-washy on this. It seems like they're saying it's a pre-sheep and goat judgment, or maybe sometimes I have seen people say it is the sheep and goat judgment. I've seen other pre-trib commentators say the gathering is an Old Testament saint's resurrection. So uh, there are some differing opinions, but my main point here is that for the most part, most pre-trib commentators will say that Matthew 24, 31, the coming on the clouds there, is a reference to Armageddon in Revelation 19. And that's actually where this all starts to get pretty interesting, because out of necessity, they had to make verses 29 through 31 refer to Armageddon. And in doing so, they've thrown the rest of the puzzle all out of whack. So we talked about eschatology a few podcasts ago being like a puzzle, like a Rubik's Cube or something. You, you need to be careful that you're not making one side look good uh, to the detriment of the other sides. And that's really what is happening with Matthew 24 and the Olivet Discourse. But the fallout from making Jesus's return Armageddon or whatever they say it is, the sheep and goat judgment or the ingathering of Israel, something that they've put all the way at the end of that seven-year period, the problem with making Matthew 24, 31 that, the culmination of Jesus's signs are pointing to that, the Armageddon in this case, is that you have complete fallout from the rest of the Olivet Discourse. That is the rest of Matthew 24 and then all of Matthew 25 is basically the same theme. So Jesus spends the lion's share of his time after he gives you the signs which culminate in his return. He then drives home the point in what, like seven parables saying essentially the same thing, which is watch therefore, since you don't know the day or the hour. He says the day or the hour several times in the thief parable, be ready for you in such you an hour that you'd think not. Uh, so be ready. And the turn 10 virgins parable, watch therefore, since you don't know the day or the hour. He says this over and over and over again, telling people to watch for the signs. The fig tree parable is all about him saying, look, when, when you see the, the, the shoots uh, on the fig tree, you know that summer is near in the same way. When you see these signs, you know that my return is near. You won't know the day or the hour, but I am commanding you to look for the signs. 
So the three main problems that arise now for the pre-tribber and what makes reading pre-trib commentaries kind of fun is number one, you have Jesus saying that no one knows the day or the hour of Armageddon. Now they don't even try to contest that. I mean, contextually, it's pretty much a lock. You have to make whatever you said verse 31 is, is what he's talking about with the rest of it. So he has to be talking about Armageddon when he says no one knows the day or the hour of Armageddon. But you students of prophecy know that's a bit problematic because we know how long the seven-year period is. We know that uh, the midpoint is 1,260 days. And Armageddon, depending on if you believe it's at the end of the seven-year period or the 30 days after that, when whatever case, you're going to be pretty bang on in terms of the day that Armageddon happens just by either counting from the abomination of desolation or from seven years from the covenant. And at least one of those you're probably going to know. So yeah, you're going to know the day of Armageddon, and that is a problem. It's interesting to me that commentaries don't really make much of a defense here. In many cases, they throw up their hands and say, yeah, this is a problem. We don't know exactly what to do. Some people say this, other people say that, but they don't commit to something. David Guzik is interested in that. He says, in this, there is a dilemma and kind of leaves it there. I have listened to a commentary of him on this before uh, too and saying, yeah, it's a little bit of a problem. He does say, and it's interesting in his commentary, he doesn't actually have, in fact, this might be the only case this, this occurs. He doesn't have a commentary on Matthew 24, 31. It's just out of his commentary. And I know I used to listen to him uh, preach on that because I remember him saying what he thought about it, but it's not in his commentary anymore. But he does say this at the end of his commentary. He says, and this is, I think, what a lot of pre-tribbers think when it comes to this. Maybe it's a platitude that they believe. They say, ah, but this is solved because we know that there are really two comings. The coming that is not spoken of anywhere in Matthew 24 or 25, that is the rapture and this second coming. So as long as you believe that there are two comings, you don't have to worry about this. And I've seen other commentaries do that too. They throw out this two comings idea as if it's a refutation of some kind to other viewpoints, that it somehow solves this. But in this, it solves nothing because think about that. Okay, let's say there is a rapture that's uh, some other time, not in Matthew 24. And then there's the second coming that is Armageddon that you've put at Matthew 24, 31. We are right back to where we started, where we have no one knows the day or the hour of Armageddon. It, it doesn't do anything to, to say that there are two comings. Another bit of fallout with the rest of the Olivet Discourse is the marriage and given in marriage. And I actually made a meme about this um, where I showed like, because if you think about this, you have what they're saying. If Armageddon is at the very end, okay, where the bowls of wrath, not just the trumpets, the trumpets are bad enough. The trumpets have, including the fifth trumpet, demon scorpions that sting people for five months and they can't die. Okay, it's bad. It's really bad stuff. The trumpets are bad. And that's nothing compared to the bowls of wrath, which I mean, literally it's scorched earth. It is unbelievably, unspeakably bad. And yet, according to their view, you just before Armageddon, you have people eating and drinking and marrying and giving to marriage. So I've got a meme of, you know, people being stung by these demon scorpions saying, hey, do you want to go out and get a drink tonight? Or, hey, do you, will you marry me? <laughs> or I'm not expecting anything, one guy is saying. So it, it, it's absurd. And they know it's absurd when they come to that in their commentaries. And again, it's one of these things where they don't, they tread very lightly on it, or they'll just simply say it's a hard verse or something like that. I think that's another one where David Guzik literally said, um, 
whatever it was like uh, this is troublesome so the third problem is these repeated commands to watch in the parables so if they are to watch for signs they are watching for signs for armageddon that apparently is the thing they need to watch out for it's all about uh, waiting for Armageddon. And some of them, as I said, will make this be the sheep and goats judgment or some other kind of thing, the ingathering of Israel or some other end, very, very end times event uh, at the end of the 70th week of Daniel. But in any of those cases, I would submit that that kind of dilutes what you need to watch for, because basically in, in the preacher mindset, this is all about people who are about to endure uh, all this wrath and they're supposed to watch for Armageddon. So pre-trib right now and for the last few decades has been kind of stuck with this interpretation of Matthew 24. But very recently, in the last decade or so, they have started to put forward new ideas to deal with specifically this problem. So two scholars are probably forefront in this uh, changing of the way that pre-tribulationalism is being taught. One of them is Craig Blazing, he was, I've mentioned him before, he is the guy that showed up in the book by Zondervan for the three views on the rapture. So he was the guy chosen to do the pre-trib position for the updated version of that book in which uh, the pre-wrath position took the place of the mid-tribulational position. The second guy is named John Hart, and he wrote a book for Moody uh, Publishing called Evidence for the Rapture, I believe, is the name of it. And in that, he's basically edited this. He has the second chapter in which he provides a theory to basically solve uh, the main problems, presumably, that we just got done talking about. And it's really interesting to read these guys because they basically have jettisoned all the old things that the way that pre-trib used to be taught. And I would say listening to both of these guys for like three quarters of their presentation, you're going, okay, yeah, that's pre-wrath, that's pre-wrath, that's pre-wrath. They have changed uh, pre-tribulationalism and just jettisoned all this stuff just to get right so they can somehow deal with the rest of the problems. For example, um, you know how... Well, this is kind of long gone. You know, the idea that Matthew 24 was just for the, the Jews and not the church. That was kind of what I always believed when I was a pre-tribulationalist, uh, that Matthew, they would always say, Matthew was a, a Jew writing for Jews. His uh, genealogy was very Jewish. So this Matthew 24 is just for Jews. So uh, don't even worry about it. And then, you know, people like John Hart point out what pre-wrath has been saying all along, which is that Matthew may be the most church-specific gospel. It's the only one that includes the Great Commission. It's the only one that includes the word church in it. It's the only one that includes the church discipline passages. It's just it, it's just not a good argument to say it's uh, it's not about the church. But yeah, it doesn't stop there. Both of these guys believe very similar things about the birth pangs, that they're uh, the same thing as the seven-year period. And they recognize that the birth pangs are essentially the same as the seals. They recognize that the parousia is basically the same as the pre-wrath believe. That is, that the rapture initiates the parousia, and the parousia extends basically uh, the entire eschatological time frame, basically. They recognize that Paul... In the and is drawing from the Olivet Discourse. I mean, that is has been something pre-wrath has been just trying and begging pre-tribbers to believe for a long time. That Paul was saying, "Hey, I'm giving a Bible study of Matthew 24 here in Second Thessalonians 2." So why have they made these changes in the modern era? And in large part, it's because they kind of have to. That's just the nature of peer review. If you have something wrong, peer review will flush it out. It may take a little bit longer if these kind of beliefs are institutionalized to such a degree, but eventually peer review will start to make things a little bit clearer. But at this point now, they're still 
clinging to the idea of imminence. They're still clinging to the idea that the seven-year period has to somehow be the wrath of God. So they are willing to make concessions in order to get out of this easy-to-debunk zone of the, the stuff that I've just outlined. Because as it stands, Armageddon being verse 31 and the rest of the Olivet Discourse sitting there with its watch therefore and... Uh, and no one knows the day or the hour, they're sitting ducks for debunkings from not people like me, but people in their uh, peer groups. So enter John Hart here, who in his book has outlined a way to deal with this. And what he does with Matthew 24 is he basically takes the same interpretation of the first part of Matthew 24. So uh, they ask Jesus a question, what will be the signs? Jesus gives them signs, 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 culminating with verse 31, which John Hart more or less interprets to be Armageddon. So nothing really has changed there. What he does differently is says this whole second part about uh, no one knows the day or the hour, one will be taken, one will be left, all this really kind of obviously rapture stuff. And he says this in his book, like, isn't this obviously rapture stuff? Um, that, that he says, that's just the rapture. We're going to call that the rapture. And so the question is, well, why hasn't anybody else, if it's that easy, if you just get to say as a pre-tribber, oh, I want this stuff to be the rapture and the other stuff to be uh, the, the Armageddon and signs that I don't have to worry about, let's just do that. Well, the reason nobody has done that when that would be the most obvious, wonderful thing that they would love to do is because it's pretty much ironclad linked. Uh, Jesus tells you the signs ending up with this uh, coming on the clouds. And then he says, watch therefore for these signs and all these other things. Contextually, it's linked. Grammatically, it's linked. This is the reason nobody's tried this before. So then the logical question is, what is your argumentation, John Hart? Surely you have a really good reason for giving us this option to do this uh, amazing thing that would solve all the problems <clears throat> for pre-tribulationalists. His argumentation is essentially that because this second part uh, talks about no one knows the day or the hour, when the first part is talking about signs, well, that kind of means in his mind that the second part really doesn't have signs, but the first part does have signs. So that means they are different things that Jesus out of nowhere started talking about the rapture because now this doesn't have signs. If you haven't thought of the answer to that yet, I'll give it to you. The idea is that this is also exactly what it would read like if Jesus just gave you a bunch of signs and then said to watch out for those signs. It's also that, you know? Uh, yeah, you could look at this and say, no one knows the day or the hour. Isn't that, hmm, that's interesting. There's no signs in the second part when there were signs in the first part. Well, yeah, because that's what this whole thing is about. I just gave you the signs. Now I'm going to tell you to watch out for those signs. I'm giving you no more signs in the second part because all I'm doing is telling you to watch out for the signs I told you about in the first part. Before we move on from that point, though, I want to point out that he makes a big deal about this second half having this this imminence language. You know, no one knows the day or the hour, but he really dr drills on this idea of watch as if it has something to do with imminence. But I really think that this needs to start being pointed out, that the term watch presupposes something to watch for. If, if he wants to call the word watch proof of imminence, which in his mind is supposed to mean no signs, no prophesied events precede the rapture, then what are you to watch for? You can't say general signs. He's already told you that he believes that the birth pangs, they aren't some things that have been going on since the beginning of the church age. They are the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. So what, in fact, are they supposed to watch for? It is an oxymoron, and it certainly doesn't mean imminence. 
His second line of argumentation is equally silly in my opinion, which is he says that the second part uses the term the day or the hour, uh, and it uses it several times, where the first part with the signs just calls it the day. And he says that this justifies splitting these two things up to talk about completely separate things. They're not together. They are completely separate because one says the day or the hour and one says the day. So one is the rapture. One is the lead up until Armageddon. So if you're wondering what hermeneutical principle he cites to justify this as a some sort of rule of interpretation, um, your guess is as good as mine. He also tries to kind of blind you with science a little bit. He quotes the Greek words that translate to now concerning, what starts this transition. He says that, hey, these, these words now concerning, they, they, they show that there's a transition here. And he doesn't actually show why it would give you the option to make it be completely different. In fact, I mean, now concerning sort of, again, sort of presupposes it's concerning something that you just got done talking about, but he's essentially pointing out the fact that the Greek words are a transitional phrase, which like everybody would agree with, and then not really making an argument after that, just sort of pointing that out. I guess the reader now thinks, okay, this is all true because it's in the Greek, so maybe that's why I don't understand it. His third uh, line of argumentation is basically worthless to us because he's basically just showing all the reasons that you should interpret this latter part as the rapture, which of course I agree with. Yes, it's obviously the rapture. People are getting taken in another left and uh, you know, no one knows the day or the hour. It's the rapture. It's the rapture a hundred times over. He's got like half of his uh, chapter about how come it's obviously the rapture. So of course I agree with that part. But I don't agree with this so-called transition in verse 36. His argumentation is weak. Alan Kirshner has a six-part series on John Hart's argumentation. Uh, let's see. It is uh, January 1st, 2019. He posted about it and linked all six parts. He does say this about it. I find this pre-trib interpretation that the parousia in Matthew 24, 36-44 uh, through 44 is not the same parousia in Matthew 24, 27-27. Through 30 through 31, one of the most con convoluted scripture-twisting interpretations from pre-tribulationalism. So needless to say, it's not uh, uh, well-received, at least from pre-rathers, but it is oddly pretty well-received among pre-tribulationalists. Again, they don't have a whole lot to choose from in terms of these new scholars that are putting out new ideas to solve these problems. In a way, and this is kind of what I want the, if I can find out more of this kind of stuff, and that's part of what I'm trying to work so hard to figure out, then I can show that there is a crumbling tower of pre-tribulationalism. It's, it's, it's falling in on itself. And if I can make that the theme of this, this movie, and, and I can make that the story of the movie, and show people how it's really true, I think I can make it a big deal. I think I can get it on places that I wouldn't have got if I just put it on YouTube or whatever. So uh, I really want to try to learn this. I was going to conclude this podcast with Craig Blazing's interpretation of this and how he tries to get around it, but uh, quite frankly, it's it's more of the same. It's it's different, but it is uh, uh, easy to to pick apart. But I am going to devote an entire podcast to Craig Blazing a little down the road because it, it requires just a little bit more uh, time than I have to talk about it today. So I don't want to shortchange it. I will remind you of a couple things: the pre-wrath. Uh, meme contest. So send your pre-wrath memes and check out the ones that have already been posted. Go to uh, twitter.com slash pre-wrath rapture or Instagram uh, slash pre-wrath rapture or my website bibleprophecytalk.com and click on the memes button. And finally, go to the website prerathmovie.com if you want to donate to this pre-wrath film project. We are again about 40% uh, of our goal. We've probably got two 
two and a half months to really get that uh, closer to the goal. I mean, we don't necessarily have to reach the goal to make the movie happen. It would just make it a better movie if it did. So in any case, uh, thanks for listening and tuning in, and I will see you next week. Bye.